Hi, I'm Dan Dunn, host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, the most wildly entertaining adult beverage-themed podcast in the history of the medium. That's right, the boozy best of the best, baby. And we have the cool celebrity promos to prove it. Check this out. Hi, I'm Allison Janney, and you're here with me on What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And that's my sexy voice. Boom. Boom is right, Academy Award winner Allison Janney. As you can see, celebrities just love this show. How cool is that? Hey, this is Scotty Pippen, and you're listening to The Dan Dunn Show. And, wait, hold on. The name of the show is what? All right, sure. Scotty Pippen momentarily forgot the show's name, but there's a first time for everything. Hey, everyone, this is Scoot McNary. I'm here with Dan Dunn on What Are You Drinking? What's it called again? Fine, twice. But famous people really do love this show. Hi, this is Will Forte, and you're, for some reason, listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. What do you mean for some reason, Will Forte? What's going on? Hi, this is Kurt Russell. Listen, I escaped from New York, but I couldn't get the hell out of Dan Dunn's happy hour. Please, send help. Send help? Oh, come on, Kurt Russell. Can somebody out there please help me? I'm Dita Von Teese, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. <laughs> Let me try one more time. Come on. Is that right? Sorry. What we're no, drinking? It's amazing. It's, it's it amazing. Right it's just... Is it right? Ah, that's better. So be like Dita Von Teese, friends, and listen to what we're drinking with Dan Dunn, available wherever you get your podcasts. MSW Media. Prevail. C'est ce programme pro politico. L'histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crimen organizado, dinero sucio. Global corruption. The welcome makes you a fight. This time I know our side will win. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Rachel Slade is here. Rachel, of course, is the author of Into the Raging Sea, uh, which is a fantastic book. And she's been on this show before. She has a new book called Making It in America, The Almost Impossible Quest to Manufacture in the USA and How It Got That Way. I talked to her on the phone like two years ago and she was telling me about this book. And it's just really, really fascinating. I love how she writes and how she approaches subjects because she delves into these things that I didn't even know I was curious about, like, uh, you know, like shipping routes and, and stuff like that, logistics. This book is about, you know, manufacturing textiles and clothes and the history of it and how it got that way and why manufacturing went overseas and, and all this stuff. It's it's totally fascinating. I, I really enjoyed the book a lot. I think you will, too. It's coming out on January 9th, and it's called, again, Making It in America. Um, but we don't only talk about that. We talk about a lot of different things. Always fun to talk to her. Uh, we talk about NAFTA. We talk about free trade. Uh, we talked about the labor movement vis-a-vis the Democratic Party. We talk about how organized crime seeped into unions and the history of that. We talked about Biden and China and the stuff Biden's doing. We talk about Amazon. We talk about capitalism and how capitalism has changed in the last 30 years slightly and how we need to change it back, goddammit. So that's what we discuss. It's a great conversation. Stick around. 
for that. It is almost Christmas. I want to wish everybody listening a Merry Christmas if you observe. And uh, even if you don't observe, you probably have the day off and I hope that you enjoy it. It's not a very white Christmas here. Uh, Upstate New York, it's been a lot of rain. I don't know, can reindeer move through rain effectively? Can they if they have red noses? I don't know. Um, I haven't seen any really. So I don't think we're going to have a white Christmas this year. And honestly, I don't really care uh, if it's white or not. What's nice is that, you know, Christmas is the solstice or around the solstice. So now the days are going to get longer, um, which is fantastic because I'm sick of all the darkness. You know, it gets dark at like 3.50 now. It's just crazy. I, I don't like all this darkness. I want more light. Come back light. And we know that, uh, that now it will because the earth spins or something. Uh, I don't really understand the mechanics of it. But I know that after the winter solstice, we're going to get longer and longer days, um, which I welcome. Every year I welcome this. Uh, if you're looking for last-minute Christmas presents, I wrote a 700-page book about the Byzantine Empire. That's a great Christmas gift uh, for somebody who's into historical fiction or somebody you just want to give like a white elephant gift to. You know, if you have like a secret Santa party, what better than a 700-page book about the Byzantine Empire, I say. You know, that's always a good one. You could always give out at the last minute uh, subscriptions to Prevail, my Substack. Uh, that would be a great gift for somebody. Gift certificates to local bookstores are nice, I think. There seem to be a lot of scarves hanging around lately. I feel like people are giving scarves a lot now. Maybe they always have. Maybe that's they're trying to manifest the white Christmas by giving the scarf. I don't really know. I want to take a quick gander at the calendar for this Prevail podcast. We have an episode, obviously, today. We're going to have an episode next Friday. The first Friday of the new year, which is January 5th, I will not be on. Uh, but I will be on for the three uh, Fridays after that. That's the plan. And then in February, I'm going to take a couple weeks off. So we're going to be with you through the holiday season. Also up front today, there's more Clarence Thomas stuff. It looks like this guy, they just basically paid him off to stay in the job. Uh, they made it so that he could, you know, live lavishly and wouldn't leave to go get uh, a better paying job elsewhere. I think this is so mind-bogglingly corrupt. It's, it's the next step below, here's a suitcase full of a million bucks, rule in our favor, please. I mean, it's very, very close to that. I don't know how this guy can stick around. It's really, uh, it's a disgrace, honestly. I don't think we could do anything about it. You know, impeaching him is probably not going to happen, but uh, maybe we have to try, you know, because this, is, this sort of corruption should not stand. We shouldn't have corrupt people in government like this running our lives, affecting our lives in the profound way that they do. So I hope Clarence Thomas is not having a Merry Christmas. I hope he's having a shit Christmas. That's what I hope. Ginny too. I hope these coup plotting assholes are having a terrible, terrible Christmas. <laughs> that is my wish for them. All right. Enough of my prattle. Uh, this is a great episode. Uh, love talking to Rachel. She's always a lot of fun and always uh, teaches me things that I don't know. Stick around. We'll be right back with Rachel Slade. Have an ultra mega Christmas. Donald Trump's our mega stud. Build that fence or the immigrants will poison all our blood. Have an ultra mega Christmas. Here's a Hitler book for you. Kosh Patel will give them hell. The next time that we coo Oh, oh, the Mr. 
mistletoe Two hot chicks and me I think I'll kiss them both Cause they're moms for liberty Have an ultra mega Christmas Cause the rapture is quite near Don't dig up a fauna And we'll have a MAGA Christmas All year Rachel Slade, welcome to Prevail Woo, good to be here Good to have you back Always so much fun to talk to you I have two pages of questions I'm looking forward to getting into all manner of things um, you're on now because you've written this book called Making It in America, The Almost Impossible Quest to Manufacture in the USA and How It Got That Way. Um, it's a terrific book. Uh, it's coming out on January 9th. So when people are listening, to this, it's going to be like two weeks away. You know, I give you two weeks notice to buy this book. And what I love about how you write about this stuff is that you find these like really, I don't want to say like very specific, almost arcane topics that I just don't think about that don't even occur to me at all. And then you manage to plumb the depths and all this interesting stuff comes out of it. And I, you know, my head just is blown a little bit. And I just, it expands my knowledge of just how things work, how things operate. Like, you know, in the past you wrote about shipping and all that, which again, literally never even crossed my mind. I think I saw a boat once, you know, I don't know anything about that. And, uh, <laughs> And this is the same way. And I was thinking about how to describe it and how to describe kind of your writing stuff. And it's like it's like a Dungeons and Dragons module where you have these characters and they go into like room A and then something happens and there's this whole thing there. And then they go to the next room and then something else happens and there's this whole world in there. And you kind of wend your way through this labyrinth of stuff and every room is interesting and it all kind of relates to each other. And at the end, you're just like, I, I just feel like I learned so much. So it's a really great book. And, and congratulations to you, is what I say. Wow. Well, thank you. Um, not being a Dungeons and Dragons person, I'm going to have to go back and play now to understand the analogy. But I, I, I think it's a compliment and I'll take it. <laughs> it absolutely is. It absolutely is a compliment. So the first question I have about the book, and we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about things in the book. We're going to talk about things that are not in the book. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about things we probably don't even plan on talking about because that's what we do. <laughs> um, but last time I talked to you, um, that might not have been last time. It was probably two years ago I talked to you and you were, you were writing this at the time and you were telling me about it and uh, you were excited about it and learning about textiles and all this stuff. But what was the impetus for this particular book? Because you kind of talk about it a little bit at the beginning, but tell everybody, why are you writing about this and why now? Yeah. So... I was raised in a family where Buy American was really important. And I like to tell the story about my dad. So uh, when I was 10 years old, we always we always had these American cars, right? The Fours, the Oldsmobiles. And when I was 10 years old, my dad drove up to the house in a VW Rabbit, a Volkswagen, which was just kind of earth shattering for us because this was a foreign car. This was a German car. And um, my dad made a big point of letting us know that it was built in Pennsylvania, very close to where I was brought up. And that that story, I use that story to basically explain that I am somebody who's been obsessed since the very beginning of my life, as, as far back as I can remember, about the provenance of things. Where do things come from? Who's making my stuff? I don't know. I'm nerd, nerding out about that was just something that I always did. 
And um, I drove people crazy. I still drive my daughter crazy about it. I drive my husband crazy about it. It's like, I need to know where stuff is made. I'm even one of those morons who, <laughs> I do not come from a sports fan family. I was one of those people who thought that like, if you're rooting for the Phillies, I'm from Philadelphia. If you're rooting for the Phillies, you're rooting for Philadelphians. I didn't realize that like, Ball players could come from different places and just play for your team for a little while and then leave. I was like, then what are we actually rooting for? So, so where things are made is very important to me. And then I, but but then always, 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 I have understood um, the the power of making um, with the health of of economies. So um, I know. I think. I think we all know that diversity is the sign of a good economy. And I'm not talking about ethnic, cultural diversity. I'm. I'm talking about if you can make lots of different things and and produce lots of different things, then um, you are might more likely to weather downtimes better, um, and you're more likely also be, to be able to negotiate on the international stage better because you're a little more independent from you know, others' economies. Um, I'm not a protectionist by any stretch of the imagination, but like I am an American and I care very, very deeply for the fate of our country and everything that I'm seeing now from, you know, the narrative about what's happening to men in America, like the, the fate of men in America and how they're not doing that well. From that to our ability to negotiate on the national stage, to our ability to create good environmental policy, whatever it is, I now see it through the lens of manufacturing. Interesting. Interesting. Um, you know, the fate of men is that, uh, you know, people have stopped talking about men, Rachel. They've stopped talking about it for 20 minutes in the popular discourse, and men don't like that. Uh, we need to go back and find out what's wrong. No. Uh, wow. The, yeah. That, that's we, we just like to be talked about constantly. And if and if God forbid some other topic of conversation comes along, you know, we don't we don't like it. Um, you mentioned about the the sports family and uh, or, or not being a sports family, but rooting for the Phillies and being Philadelphia. Jerry Seinfeld uh, once, you know, making the same point that you just made, said, you know, we're basically rooting for laundry. That's what he's, you know, like the uniform. So. Uh, which brings us into the next question. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, which which is about textile manufacturing. Again, something I literally have never thought about at all, like ever in my. I just am like, okay, here's a shirt. I'm going to put it on now. Wow. It, yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't. It just didn't occur to me. I mean, I know on some level, yes, someone must have made this at some point, and um, I think I knew about the Triangle Building, you know, fire, and that's about mm. it. That's that's the extent of my knowledge of, uh, of textile manufacturing. And you go into it in the, at the beginning of the book here in a really interesting way, because um, it's obviously a very important part of the of history, not just U.S. history but world history. Um, because people, once they started figuring out how to make clothes and you know textiles, um, you know, the, the economy started to boom. We could do more things. Like one of the things I learned in the book is that. Great Britain amassed this massive fortune just by basically making wool from sheep, which seems preposterous, but that, you know, there it is. It was just, that's just what they did for centuries. And um, they accumulated all that money and then they went and conquered places and it was it worked out well for them. And obviously uh, the history of the United States, um, the textual, textile manufacturing plays into that 
because of the cotton in the South and who was, you know, doing the the picking of that cotton and the the working of the cotton and all that kind of stuff. So talk a little bit. And you said you, you you've always been interesting interested in how things are made, but talk a little bit about the history of textiles, like in the country, but also in in the post World War II period, because that's also something you and I talked about this on the phone like two years ago, and I'm still fascinated by it. So talk a little bit about that. Okay, textile manufacturing in the U.S. Well, um, so <laughs> it's hard to know where to start, right? Which is which is maybe part of the reason that I'm Dungeons and Dragons lady at the moment. Um, but <laughs> it really is a compliment. I promise you, <laughs> it's going to stick in my craw for a while. But yeah, I mean, the idea was I, I what's what fascinates me is that during the American Revolution, of course. Uh, American soldiers were not wearing American-made fabrics. They were making fabrics actually that were probably made in England, but were shipped by the Dutch over to America and um, then possibly sewn here, possibly sewn back there. But I mean, Americans and colonists had been forbidden from making things because the UK, the, the British, um, were textile manufacturing powerhouse. And they didn't want anybody threatening their livelihood. That was a source of that was a major source of income. So, as soon as the revolution ended, Washington turned to you know President Washington turned to Alexander Ham Hamilton and said, "Help us figure this out. Like, help us figure out how to make things." And one of the first things we needed to figure out how to make, super fundamental, hello, was clothing, because. All of our textiles basically have been coming from England. You know, that was right at the moment when people were hooking up machines to all kinds of uh, looms and mills. And um, we need to figure that out real fast. And so in the case of, um, in the first major case of corporate, corporate espionage, um, one of my neighbors uh, Mr. Lowell went over to England and um, passed himself off as a country bumpkin and was able to memorize the inner workings of those um, first textile mills in England and then brought that know-how know -how back to right here where I am. I'm in Boston um, and opened the United States' first textile mills here. Um, and then we were kind of off and running. And yes, they were they were working with wool first. Um, and then soon after we figured out how to use the cotton gin, unfortunately, and then the North was able to exploit free labor in the South in the form of enslaved people and, um, you know, create uh, a cotton mills as well up here in the North. But anyway, so that, that's just brief background. I just wanted to make sure that it was clear. Um, but yes, yeah, so what happened was Americans became very, very good at manufacturing textiles. And then, and textiles, by the way, is, is cloth. And then there's this other part that happens when you want to wear the cloth. You could either just wrap it around yourself like a mummy, um, or you could hire somebody to cut and sew. And cut and sew um, was sped up quite a bit in the middle of the 19th century when they invented the, um, the lockstick sewing machine. Um, and suddenly, you know, anybody with machine could start cranking out stuff. Uh, then you get into the whole garment district thing in New York, where you have lots and lots of immigrant women doing cut and sew, doing tons of um, clothing manufacturing, and really, you know, anywhere that there were industrial centers. 
And that is, of course, also contemporaneous with the birth, with the real birth of the labor movement in the United States. We can talk about that. I'm sure you want to. Oh, we will. Um, <laughs> and we will. But um, fast forward to World War II. So, you know, as World War II was wrapping up, and of course, it was a devastating war, and so many people were displaced, and so many cultures were destroyed, and so many cities were were ruined. Not the least of which were the were the Japanese. I mean, um, the the devastation brought about by World War II is you can't fathom. I mean, people were so um, poor and starving that they were eating rats. And America, the United States, was very concerned about rebuilding. Japan and other countries um, following the war because they didn't, frankly, want these civilizations to fall to bad influences again, like emperors or um, autocrats. Uh, communists. Or communists, God forbid. Um, and so there was a whole rebuild plan that was designed um, by the American policymakers even before um, World War II was over. And part of that was rebuilding textile and manufacturing in Japan. And an, an amazing number of things came out of that effort, which maybe you'd like to talk about, but one of them was that American know-how was transported or transplanted to Japan, which then came back to the United States in the 1980s in the form of Kaizen, which I'm yeah. happy to talk about if you want to. Is that is that where you wanted to go with this? I don't know. You know, that's okay. Kaizen is the business management, you know, kind of theories that came everyone thought was new and they weren't new. They were ours with a different name, as I understand. Right. So yeah. so you and I are old enough to remember this that um Back in the 1980s, when car when Japanese car manufacturers started manufacturing in the United States, and why were they doing that? Because um, the United States has set tariffs very high on Japanese autos, and so the only way that they could really viably break into the American market was by actually manufacturing here. Solved a lot of problems. So the Japanese um, came over and set up factories in the United States, and um, one of the... Um, or, or the main management framework that they uh, Im imported into the United States was something called Kaizen. And anybody who's in production probably has heard of Kaizen, but it's basically like, the, the concept is simple. In any um, business that has lots of different moving parts and different, you know, things have to add up to make something happen. Anywhere along, any person along that line or anywhere along that line, you can find inefficiencies, you can locate inefficiencies. And um, the idea is to encourage the idea of kind of a, a flat corporate structure or a flat production structure where um, anybody involved in production can, you know, contribute ideas about how to make it more efficient. And, um, you know, so the idea is to foster community, but also to get people kind of vigilant and reward them if they do find inefficiencies, because that's what we need. We need to be more efficient. More, more efficiency means uh, faster production, means more profit, or maybe safer work environment, whatever it is. Anyway, point is, 
That whole concept was developed in the U.S. during World War II when um, American factories suddenly were tasked by the American government with producing all kinds of things in a, you know, very quickly, like Liberty ships, um, things that they had never produced before. And um, so, yeah, so so people here, business leaders here and um production uh, workers here had developed that concept, sent it over to Japan, and then it came back to us with different vocabulary, you know, 40 years later, and people freaked. People absolutely freaked. So if you were alive during the 80s, you might remember people freaking out about all oh, these, these, the way the Japanese work is so foreign to American workers and what is this Kaizen stuff? And it's just, it's never going to work. It's never going to take root in America. This is, this is too strange. We're culturally too different. P.S. This was an American concept. Hello. It was just 40 years old. So maybe that's what changed. I don't know. Maybe Americans have changed over that time, which would be an interesting study. I think that um, I had Nelson Lichtenstein on the show a couple of weeks ago, who's the the uh, labor historian, and he was talking about that. Mm -hmm. And also at the time, oh. everybody was so afraid of Japan as a as an economic force, you know, in the eighties that they sort of discounted the threat of China and just sort of pivoted over that. And the Chinese really benefited at, at that starting at that at that time period from, um, you know, just us basically underestimating them. I think. Uh, and it's funny that you mentioned Lowell and the, the corporate espionage, because like it, it's always funny to me how we yell and scream about something some country is doing. And it's always something that we did like 100 years ago. You know, it's, it's, it never fails. You know, we're all wait, we're yelling at China now. You're stealing our trade secrets. And you know, we're just imitating what what the U.S. did. You know, the, the, not that it makes it right, but, you know. But that's a very important point is that, you know, everything that China is doing makes sense. And you're right. Um, Americans did all of those things at one point or another because China rightfully is very concerned about its own people and the future of its economy. And the thing about the, the, the Chinese is that I think, um, or at least I've read that they're much better at thinking long-term than Americans. No way. No way. <laughs> And I can't so, believe it. We we can't even wait a week to watch a fucking TV show. We have to binge the whole damn thing in a weekend. That's our culture now. Yeah, thank you. Um so so they've so they seem to do they seem to have taken American lessons to the nth degree and done everything so much in some ways better than Americans have done, but we can talk about that. I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I didn't want this book to focus on the Chinese too much because um, look, already it's happening. Manufacturing is moving from China to Vietnam and it will continue to move and move and move because the big multinational brands, and they really are monopolists at this point, the big multinational brands don't care where stuff is manufactured. They yeah. only care about profit or, you know, in keeping the cost of production low. And so that's probably the most harmful thing about globalization is that when you take these large 
brands, these large, large multinational brands, what they're doing is they're just pitting small manufacturer against small manufacturer. And then when they kind of exhaust the possibilities, then they start pitting countries against countries. And it is just a, an awful race to the bottom. And nobody, nobody wins. Nobody wins. No, it's just exploitative. And by nature, it's exploitative. One of the things that's infuriating that that you wrote about in the book kind of um, is the book is about, um, I we should say, the, the sort of through line in the book is, is the company American Roots, uh, which makes hoodies. And you follow sort of the founders of the company. And it, it's very interesting who they are and what their backgrounds are and how they did what they did. Um, I don't want to talk about that too much because that's I don't want to spoil the book. You know, I don't want to spoil the But um so one of the things that is infuriating about the book, right? There's a table in there where it talks about how much it costs to make a hoodie in China or in Vietnam or whatever, and how much it costs to make it here in the States. And the, it doesn't, it isn't even really that much more expensive hoodie to hoodie. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, the thing is, whatever it is, if it's 20, it's, it's, it's not a lot of money that I guess, you know, multiplied over time. Sure. It's more profit, but they're making a fuck ton of profit no matter what. And the fact that they have to just fuck over the entire country and everyone living here to make a little bit more money is just it's appalling and disgraceful. And I don't know what I don't know what can be done about it, but man, it's really awful. Well, I, I mean, that is true. So so in, in the book, what you're referring to is um, I have a little chart about a Zara hoodie and the actual cost yeah. of a Zara hoodie and who gets paid what. So the hoodie in question is thirty dollars. I did not do this. Um, I, I did not actually do the math here or the research. Um, I was given permission by a nonprofit research group in, in Switzerland that actually did the study. But what they found that in this $30 hoodie, um, a very small part of the cost w went actually to the workers who produced it. And maybe that doesn't come as a huge surprise to a lot of readers. But the truth is that, um, of course, those workers are not actually making what you or I would call a living wage, even within their own countries where there are um, uh, currency discrepancies. Um, but yeah, it does cost just a little more to make something ethically. So why don't we do that? And, you know, I think, I think the answer is quite obvious and that's that corporations, the big, now I want to make a, a I want to make a big distinction between, you know, massive monopolists, right. And small American businesses and manufacturers. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about Amazon and Home Depot and these fucking, yeah, okay. Walmart, um, yeah. Nike, um, you know, the, the brands that everybody knows about. I mean, so the point is that when in 2023, most corporations are still operating under Milton Friedman principles, which are, you are beholden only to your shareholders. Right. Whereas before 1970, before Milton Friedman basically gave them a theoretical framework to be greedy, there was there was a sense among a, a, a gentleman's agreement among American business people that they, they were beholden to their share, their stakeholders, sorry, their stakeholders. And their stakeholders, of course, included shareholders, um, but also included their workers and the communities in which they worked, um, you know, where their factories were. So there was this strong sense. It didn't last very long. I mean, but there was a strong sense in American business that lasted about 80 years that if you set up a business, you were responsible to everybody you touch. You know, from 
from from your supply chain to the workers making your stuff, um, obviously to your shareholders and also to your customers, by the way, um, that you're producing stuff that was solid and good and, and um, would last. It's just it was it was a moment in time, <laughs> and I don't I'm 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 not nostalgic, and I don't want to be revisionist. And certainly there were a lot of problems, but um, there it's quite clear that we have lost so much by giving that up over only the past thirty years, like yeah. quite within my lifetime. This is not ancient history. This is something that just kind of you know happened, and then spread like wildfire across the United States. It is it is new and therefore it is reversible. Yeah. <laughs> like we we're not that far away from a time when corporations actually felt a deep responsibility to the communities where they were and to the workers who work for them. And that's why they offer pensions, you know, instead of 401ks. I mean, you know, there's so many ways that corporations actually helped uh, or, or showed that they felt a responsibility to the people who were working for them. And they also, to the place where the company was located, because it was located in a fucking place and not in some island that has 25 people on it. You know, I went to I went to Pittsburgh for the first time over the summer. And that it's, it's just downtown Pittsburgh is wonderful because they had so much money around the turn of the century, the turn of the last century. And there's all these beautiful Art Deco buildings and there's a set and it's because they all invested money in the place where they lived and where their workers lived and stuff like that. And now it's just like, we're going to move. We're going to Elon Musk. We're going to move from California to Texas because I don't want to pay more. Time. Fuck you, Elon. Go back. To, you're not even American, dude. Like, what is this? You know, it's, it's there's no ethical anything anymore about as far as that goes yeah in my book um i talk about how when i was doing my research or when i was hanging out with ben and whitney waxman who are owners co-founders of american roots up in maine so so they're just outside of portland maine in a small town called westbrook and the main employer in westbrook was i don't think still is but was this paper mill the paper mill is still there they make paper the paper mill was founded in, I think, the 1870s or 1880s. Now, I'm not going to say the paper is great, making paper is great, but Maine is a place where paper has historically been made. And it's amazing to me because when I decided to stay up there, I actually ended up renting a room in a mansion directly across the street from this enormous paper mill. And the mansion was built by the paper mill's founder. He wanted to be right there. Yeah. He wanted to wake up every morning, have his coffee, and this was in like 1885, have his coffee, step outside, and see his workers going to work, and see his factory happening, and see the community that he had built. And that ain't where we are now, right? Like, People want production as far as possible from their wealth, right? Um, you know, there's something almost dirty or un-American about celebrating making, about, you know, being there where the stuff is made, be understanding how stuff is made. So I just I just love that story because I just I just think about that founder and the pride he must have felt knowing that that whole town, like he had built that whole town, his, his um, ability to create that factory, make it run, sell the goods, 
was keeping all those people alive, their bellies fed, you know, the turkeys in the ovens. <laughs> <laughs> now, but, and that, I think that sort of thing is just gone. I mean, the richest people in the country are literally trying to leave the planet. They want to go to Mars to get as far away from the peons and the poor people as possible. That's where, that's where we are now. The, 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 I mean, it's a vast difference. It's like light years. I don't know. It's a lot, it's a long way away, you know? And, and uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not great. I, I don't well, like this, this crop of rich people that we have now. Well, I agree with you. And that's, that's why this is somewhat of a manifesto or Actually, somebody has pointed out that it actually is a manifesto. I'd mean to write a manifesto, but it is a manifesto with a really nice narrative and lots of historical context. But the manifesto is basically this. We don't have to live like this. Yeah. Right? We don't. We don't have to live like this. And there's a great end run around all of this that, that you and I are talking about. And that's just, you know, buying local buying domestic, taking an, take another minute. You know, when you need to buy something, just just take another minute, do a little research, see if you can find that thing made in America. It's not necessarily gonna cost you a lot more, but if it is significantly more than that weird XYZ company that's selling it to you on Amazon, like we need to interrogate that, right? So take for example, like food containers. So OXO, O-X-O-X-O, it, it, they don't actually manufacture in the United States, but um, so maybe that's a bad example, but let me just use that for a minute because it's in my head. So they 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 invented this pop-up container. Have you seen these things? They're like, mm -hmm. it's a plastic bin, right? It has this little top and it has a very satisfying big button that you press that like expands the base and seals it. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know okay. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not crazy. Like other people use these things too, right? Yeah. Okay. So um, these things are now all over Amazon. You can buy them directly from manufacturers in China and have it sent to you. Well, great, that's fucking awesome because OXO invented it, that's an American company, um, but now you've got knockoffs being made in China that you are buying directly through Amazon, which means that Every single research and development dollar that OXO spent to design and create and put into production these things is now gone. Like you're not supporting that company. You're not supporting any kind of local manufacturers. So all of your money is just going right out of the country. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. Have, and why is this stuff so cheap? Why, why are those bins, the, the non-OXO bins, so much cheaper? Because China has a very strong, what I like to call industrial policy. It's, it's manufacturing first policy and manufacturing specifically for exportation policy. And the idea well, was first to you know, build the Chinese economy, but it's had a very nefarious effect on American manufacturing because Basically, the government is supporting all these small companies in myriad ways to be able to manufacture super cheap and get stuff to us super duper cheap. Yeah. So that ultimately the impact is we can't resist these cheap goods. And ultimately, by not buying American made goods, we're putting ourselves out of business. Yeah, because then there's not going to be any other goods. There's not going to be any choice. And then once there's not any choice, they'll just raise the fucking prices, which is the Amazon model. 
um, and the Home Depot model and everything else. Um, okay, so this is a good this is a good chance to uh, to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Rachel Slade. Men cannot know the anguish of being ruled ineligible on anatomical grounds beyond one's control. Slaves can perhaps understand eunuchs, too, and perhaps even those doomed nobles like the deposed Emperor Romanos Diogenes, whose eyes have been put out, but not men. This podcast is brought to you by Empress, The Secret History of Anna Kay, the new book by Greg Oliar, now available on Amazon. If the truth is ever to be told, I am the only one left to tell it, and tell it I must. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth. The issues of the day are really complicated. Everybody loves a good hot take, but really understanding an issue takes some digging. I'm Asha Rangaba. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. Join us each week as we dig deep into pressing legal topics. Listen to It's Complicated anywhere you get your podcasts and check out our YouTube channel. Okay, we're back with Rachel Slade, uh, author of Making It in America, uh, I want to talk about making it in America. I think you've made this point a little bit. We're talking about uh, the Chinese and exports and imports and how the whole sort of economic system works. One of the things that comes up is is tariffs and free trade and NAFTA. And these are things that I remember when NAFTA was passed. It was in college, I think. And people were talking about it. And I didn't really understand it. But it seemed like free trade seemed like a good idea because it's free and it's trade. What can be bad about something called this, you know? Like it's pro and it's life. What's so bad? And uh, you know, it, these guys are so good with their fucking uh, marketing with the with these concepts. Um, but in fact, NAFTA just was very very bad for uh, for American manufacturers. Um, talk a little bit about that. And what's also the difference between NAFTA and the Trump version of NAFTA, the name of which isn't as catchy as NAFTA. <laughs> well, it, it's actually NAFTA. Uh, the new NAFTA is not actually very different from the old NAFTA. It's just got a brand new name, which I can't remember. Um, because NAFTA just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, so um, after Milton Friedman gave uh, corporations permission to be greedy, um, then executives and got together with policymakers and started to try to figure out um, a system by which um, corporations could make things for less so that they could increase their profit and increase, um, you know, 
pay back to shareholders, which by the way, gets reflected in your 401k. So there were, there were several steps to getting Americans to buy this whole concept. And one was getting them off of pensions. So as soon as you are on a 401k, that means that you are responsible for your own retirement destiny on, you know, above and beyond social security, right? So invest wisely or you're an asshole. Like it's your fault if, if you, your, your savings fail. That's very different from a pension, which is um, a guaranteed income um, for your life, uh, you know, until um, after you retire, until you die. So by getting Americans on 401k, suddenly everybody was tied to the stock market, like in a very, very profound way. That was really clever because if you had a portfolio that included big companies that, by the way, were starting to offshore manufacturing, therefore reap higher profits, whoa, look at your portfolio is doing really well. At whose expense? Eh, who knows? <laughs> well, of course, now we do know. Anyway, uh, you know, evil geniuses, uh, Kurt, Kurt Anderson and evil geniuses yeah, yeah. tells the story extremely well. And that is like my Bible. I love that book. It's, it's so a great well book. It's a great book, yeah. So, so well written. The guy's a genius. He's a genius, but not an evil one. I don't not think. an evil one. Not evil. No. One. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but um, basically, um, Bush one said to Congress, I am going to negotiate a free trade, or my administration is going to go uh, negotiate a free trade agreement with Mexico and Canada. And you, and they're going to do it behind closed doors. And um, you are going to either have to accept it whole hog or uh, or it, you, or reject it whole hog. You can't modify it once we iron out the terms. And the terms were basically like no tariffs and um, no no um, environmental or labor restrictions for offshoring manufacturing to Mexico or Canada for American companies. Like that was it. It was just red light, red light, red light, green light, go for it. <laughs> And, um, you know, at the time, labor unions were saying, whoa, this is going to be a serious problem because they already knew that corporations were so eager to, to get around uh, labor requirements and labor unions. But labor requirements, you know, just OSHA, mm -hmm. you know, just just like the Office of uh, Safety and Health Standards. And um, so corporations were eager to get around all of the, quote unquote, you know, uh, regulations that had impeded them from making profit. And so NAFTA was actually signed and put into law when Clinton came in. And as far as I'm concerned, that's what cost Hillary the election in 2016 was memories of her and Bill, you know, supporting free trade, which then within just a couple of years, just a couple of years, jobs were gone. Yeah. And the thing to remember is that you know, we think of Detroit, we think of Akron, we think of, you know, major manufacturing cities where um, manufacturing just kind of evaporated and now um, are dangerous cities with uh, very little, with, with bad economic bases at the moment. But like, the thing I have to remember is that manufacturing at that moment was all over America. And that meant that there were these like one industry towns. You know, one of the towns that I talk about is Campbellsville, Kentucky, a town maybe that you've never heard of before. But in that town, there were like 20,000 people making underwear for Fruit of the, Fruit of the Loom. Loom. That was it. 
that was okay. It was okay. And so the women and men who are making underwear and packaging up the underwear and doing all the things that are required to get these t-shirts and panties or whatever out the door, like they could earn a solid income, feed their children, send them to school, whatever. It was a thriving community until it wasn't. And then it was gone. So my point is, you know, there were these one industry rural towns all over the United States that were completely devastated after the signing of NAFTA because, you know, manufacturing just left. And they they were kind of like hidden. I mean, of course, the people in those towns knew the, the profound impact when factories closed. But because they were rural, I think it took a long time for journalists um, to or the media in general to like really catch up on on what was happening. Yeah, sneaky. It was kind of out of view, right? It was out of, and the same thing was happening in Maine. Yeah, now Maine is not not close to the uh, industrial, you know, the big cities certainly. Um, now, is that where the you write about the thing where the fruit of the loom leaves and then Amazon starts up? Is that is that the same town where Amazon started up? Campbell's Kentucky, Campbellsville, Kentucky. So yeah, this is a really interesting story. So I know a lot about Fruit of the Loom because um, the the owners of American Roots, Ben and Whitney Waxman, who I mentioned before, ended up hiring a production specialist who had cut his teeth at Fruit of the Loom back in the 1980s. Um, and he came into their factory, the American Roots factory, you know, what was it, like 35 years later, to try to help them figure out how to how how to how to um improve production. Um, but yeah, so so what's funny about Campbell's bill is you have all these people who are suddenly just completely out of work. I mean, I don't know what I would do. What would you do? You know, this is it. And um, a little-known startup appears in Kentucky, and they make a deal with the town and the state. And the deal is this. We're, we're a tech startup, and we'd like to um, settle down in Campbellsville, like set up a warehouse here and bring goods in and, and send goods out. And in exchange for, you know, giving these people who are now out of work, work, we want to um, get a percentage of their income tax as, as, as a reward for giving people work. I don't know if you noticed this in the book. It's, it's a little detail, but it's, it's uh, absolutely fucking fascinating. So this was, I think, 1999, I want to say. So it was right after Fruit of the Loom left. And Kentucky says yes. And so this company is shaving off like, I think, 3% of um, income tax right out of the state, right into the company's coffers in exchange for giving people work. And that company was Amazon. And then underpay and then underpaid the people that they, you know, paid them much less than much less. much less because they were no longer skilled workers. When they were working for Fruit of the Loom, they were considered skilled workers. Many of them had been there for a decade or two decades or three decades. Like they were really good at what they did. And they were actually making at the end some of these people like $30 an hour in those days. I mean, that was incredible. Money, yeah. They were making a lot of money. And um, yeah, no, Amazon was never going to pay that much. So Amazon was pocketing these um, tax breaks, you know, for giving people work. But the work that they were giving them was moving imported crap 
around the country so that we could get cheap goods that were no longer made by us. So the, the whole argument for, for offshoring was, oh, look, you know, goods are going to get cheaper, which was kind of true. But the price you had to pay for it was that you would be making a lot less also. Yeah. Yeah. It's too it's too much math for people to, to understand, I think, ultimately. Same thing with the healthcare stuff. Like, you know, if we... If you rate, if you paid more, a little more in taxes to to pay into a universal healthcare system, you would wind up paying a lot less in medical costs. But nobody wants to have their taxes raised, so no. You know, it's like it's bizarro. It, it doesn't make any sense. Um, I want to get back to something you were saying about about the Clintons because uh, Nelson Lichtenstein, who was on, wrote a book about you know the the Clinton uh, Bill Clinton's uh, relationship to labor um, and how bad it was. Um, both as when he was governor of Arkansas and then when he came uh, to Washington and, you know, ran the country. And his point, Nelson's point, was that the Democratic Party needs to embrace labor, you know, to really, uh, as, a, as a bulwark against big corporate interests, you know, that's the only other force that there is other than the government, right? And uh, and the Clintons just didn't do that. They were just the opposite. He was always distrustful of it. Um, so I, I guess... My question is, why do you think, because I, when I think about labor, at, you know, traditionally, I'm thinking about not now, not me now, but me when I'm 25 or something. My view of it is pretty negative because um, the main labor disputes that I'm aware of are the baseball strike, which for me personally was, all, I hated it. Um, I think I had to, I got some job where, you know, some minimum wage job, like in high school for a, like a week and a half. And I had to pay into the union. I was like, I'm going to be here for for, you know, a summer, why am I doing that? You know, and then the, there was always this idea, this sort of stereotype of the, you know, the labor boss guy who was overlaid with the, the mafioso guy. And, uh, and the whole system is predominantly white. So that's, that's my concept of it, but that isn't historically necessarily accurate. And why yeah. did I think that? And how yeah. can we fix the the perception of it, I guess? So, so I really want to talk about this little piece of history that not a lot of people know about, or, or maybe not enough people have like strung all these pearls together. So there was a big labor movement, obviously, at the uh, beginning at the turn of the last century, and then it really took off under federal uh, under under Roosevelt. But I mean, it became very strong during the Depression, after the Depression. But I want to talk about this other force that was growing very rapidly, and that was the mafia and the mob. And that the 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 origin story of of the mafia and I say the mob because like I don't want to be racist. I mean, it was Italians, it was Jews, it was all kinds of people, right? But the origin of that was prohibition. So in 1920, booze suddenly becomes illegal. Everybody loves booze. You know, you're not going to stop people from buying booze. And so this underground organization pops up to ensure that people get their booze. And um, that, of course, created winners and losers, including the Kennedys, like Joe Kennedy. He was a bootlegger. And, um, you know, uh, so so you have this incredible, you know, very quickly, this incredibly strong underground organization of bad guys. I don't know. Are they bad guys? I don't know. What are they? Bad guys, good guys? I don't know. They're selling alcohol. Is that good or bad? They're people bringing us booze is what they are. They're people, They're bartenders. Okay, okay. Yeah. But the point is that, that it, that, and Ken Burns makes this point very clearly in, in his um, movie, in his documentary about prohibition, but like it immediately made almost every American a lawbreaker. Mm. 
So what you have is this underground unofficial organization that now runs trucking, right? And it's it's yeah. running nightclubs and it's running um it's running across the border and it's doing all these things necessary to produce and distribute an illegal good. And in order to do that, it has to pay off the law um, in, in the form of paying off police and has to pay off DAs and has to pay off politicians. And so it becomes a very, very powerful organization. So then 1933, end of prohibition, the repeal of prohibition, you have this incredibly powerful underground group now desperate for new sources of income. And they look around and what's what's growing? You know, we're, what's a growth industry? And one of the major growth industries actually was labor. So labor was getting very, very strong under Roosevelt. And um, labor, of course, one of the strongest labor movements was right there in New York City, where, where the mob had been doing like a lot of the distributing of of booze. Now they were moving clothing around because of the garment industry. And so they were driving. Anyway, the point is there was a lot of money in the labor movement because people were pooling their resources. They were putting it into pensions. Uh, the labor movement in, in New York was actually like building housing. They were developing banks. They had schools. They had all kinds of things. And the mob couldn't wait to get their hands on that money. So the mob actually played both sides. They they were paid by company owners to, to quell labor uprisings. So they would actually go and like beat up organizers and sometimes yeah. even kill them. And then the organizers would then go to the police or the politicians and say, you know, like somebody needs to protect us. We're getting beaten up. And they were ignored. And so then they and then the mob would show up and say, we'll protect you yeah. if you let us in. And so the protection money is coming from both places, right? We'll, right? Like, we'll protect you from organizers. And then the organizers are also protected by the mob. It was like fucking crazy. But that's how labor and the mafia and the mob start to play together in a very unnatural way. It was not desirable. Obviously, labor did not want to be contaminated by organized crime, but they literally had no choice. Their lives were at stake. And in fact, you can watch these like wonderful movies from the 30s. I need to get a list for you of exactly that happening of, you know, good labor people getting getting murdered um, by the mob um, to prevent them from organizing. And then the mob ultimately taking over the movement. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, but yeah, it all makes perfect sense. And uh, you know, the the mafias in in Italy sprung up mostly because the you know the people in charge of like Sicily and Naples, the actual king or whatever the hell it was, the, the administration was so shitty, and there was no functional law, there was no state that did anything. So whenever you have a system like that, like a vacuum of authority. Yes. Mafias come in and say, we will establish the authority. Uh, somebody has to do it. And, and uh, you know, at least initially in Sicily, not even a bad thing. And then it grows into this into this monster. But I want to be clear that um, that, that you know, that that's one instance. That's that's Garmin workers. That's New York City. But um, that I'm not I don't mean to imply that all unions were necessarily corrupt. Course, and in yeah. fact, 
Um, most of them were not, and they were negotiating on good faith. And I also want to make a very clear point, make it very clear that it wasn't just about wages. In fact, oftentimes the negotiations had nothing to do with wages. It was about working conditions, how long people worked during a day, um, you know, what kinds of benefits you got when, when you left. Um, you know, you think about the broad range of the labor movement from, you know, United Mine Workers and, and the struggle, the struggles that they went through to just, you know, get running water in in yeah. mining villages to, you know, now we have doctors organizing. I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. But now because of all um, these managed care and these private equity owned um hospital organizations, doctors are starting to realize that they're just cogs in the machine and need to organize so that they can actually, you know, make decisions that make sense for their patients. So the labor movement has been tarnished, I think, by bad media, by movies, um, by a few bad apples, if you will. But, um, but, but so much good has come out of the labor movement that we just take for granted these days. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the you know the work week and the. Um, no, I want to go back to what you were saying about prohibition because prohibition is so interesting to me. I read this great book about it. I think it was called Last Call. And um, you know, first of all, it didn't do anything like it was supposed to do. There was some quote of a guy who was in Detroit at the time, and he was like, "It's impossible to get a drink here." Because there's so many people in the bar that I, the bartender could not hear me yelling at him what I want, you know. And uh, so it was um, mixed drinks like cocktails all came out of that time because before that people just drank whatever raw. And the yeah. the, the quality of the alcohol was so, sh so bad that they had to futz with it to make it palatable for people to drink it. But the thing that's that's the most interesting is that without the, the suffrage movement, it probably wouldn't have happened. Like it could get the suffrage and prohibition and income tax are all tied together because before the income tax happened the entire budget of the united of the federal government was based on excise taxes on alcohol because yes. people drank so fucking much that it was literally could fund the entire government and uh and then the men were drinking too much the women didn't like it because they were victims of abuse and they wanted the vote and they so all of this stuff happened boom 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 and so are you saying it's women's fault is that what, is that what no saying? i'm saying yeah, I, it all but comes back the, to women I, I'm it, no no sure. it wasn't a fault because they were being victimized and abused by these drunk louts yeah. and one of the things that did come out of prohibition ultimately is that people drink a lot less than they used to they just do people mm -hmm. drank more in 1905 than they drink in in 2005 it's by by orders of magnitude um so it's all very interesting. And kids were drinking. I mean, kids yeah. were drinking beer at a very young age because they were working because, you know, there weren't labor laws for children. And so, you know, they'd get off of work and they'd like pound beers. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know, it's, yeah, you got to do it. It's it's fun, you know, uh, but it, it's just interesting because it's I like these. I like studying these things where there's not one group of people that wants a certain thing, which they absolutely should have. And how that affects something else and and it all gets knotted together and then um like even out of prohibition um the people in the south that would like you know it, most of it was about logistics and getting things from point a to point b they had these guys that were souping up cars to make them go faster than the oh, police yeah. cars and like nascar came out of that like yes. th that entire industry came out of prohibition too like there's so many things that come out of it it's totally fascinating <laughs> see i love when we go down these rabbit holes of of, of cool shit you know, I do. Yeah. Now, this has been 
um, this has been a great year. Having now that we've dumped on labor in the past, this has been a really good year for labor. If you look at the, you know, first of all, Biden is clearly very, very pro labor in a way that I can't remember another president being, um, at least in, in, you know, recently. And, uh, you know, you have the writer's strike and you have the, the, the auto workers and all this stuff and these, these big successes. And each one sort of, uh, it's a domino effect in a sense. They say, oh, this worked for them. It can work for us too. And then the next thing you know, um, there's this ascension of, of what's going on. And I think combined with, you know, things he's doing or the Biden administration's doing, like, you know, for example, not allowing chips to be manufactured overseas or in China anymore. Um, so what do you make of all this? Do you think there is a, a an upswing in labor? Um, and how, you know, what do you think Biden has done to help this? Um, just talk about your thoughts about what's been going on the last year. Yeah, I mean, not just the last year, but, but several years. I think what happened was, you know, Ben Waxman makes this point in my book, is that people, workers were tired. They were tired of being exploited. Um, they were tired of feeling expendable. They were tired of, you know, the lack of pay transparency and um, and lack of parity. And um, people just dog tired, especially with the rise of the gig economy and shift economies and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And, you know, I mean, you're my generation. We're both Gen X and um we have a tendency to just roll with it, right? We're we're like this weird intermediary generation where, oh, sexism, okay, yeah, I guess that's just part of, you know, being a worker in America. That's that's how I lived most of my life until suddenly Me Too happened. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute, I don't have to put up with shit with this shit. <laughs> you know? And I, I think it was this I think it's the same with workers. And I really do believe that um that younger that that people younger than us are just dog tired of being exploited, and I think a lot of that came to a head during the pandemic, when those who were designated necessary workers were also those who were the least compensated. Many of them were the mm -hmm. least compensated, least respected workers. I'm talking about warehouse workers and- Cashiers at the grocery store and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Poultry yeah. processing plants. And, you know, I would, I would call them somewhat invisible workers, people who we didn't really think about. And suddenly they're the essential workers, right? And so I think, I think it was just this uh, kind of- um, coalescing moment when all of us began to see how connected we were that we were all that the many of us were being exploited for this strange economy that's emerging that or has emerged that is relatively destructive and undermining of our society so what what biden has done is for the first time you're right in in recent memory is that he's given the National Labor Relations Board, real heft. He's giving them more money to, um, to try cases of labor versus um, corporations. And that means there's not this huge backlog. That means that the, the cases are being taken seriously. And that's sending a huge message to corporations that you can no longer fuck around, that, you know, these cases will be taken seriously. And if you do really 
there's so many things that 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 corporations are really good at blocking organizers from coming in. If you do those things now, and people catch you doing those things, like you're gonna have to pay, and hopefully the fines will be a little more punitive, uh, and they're they're gonna cut a little deeper than they did before. But that's one thing that he's done that I think is sending a huge message um, across America, uh, especially for workers who's whose jobs are still here and can't go anywhere else, like doctors, like nurses. I mean, you can't offshore that stuff, like service workers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're realizing, I think, I hope, that they have power, but they only have power if they're organized. Yep. It's power in the union, you know? Um, so a couple things based on the, the, st- the stuff that you just said. Um, Gen X, our thing is just, it, it's the uh, Richard Linkletter from Slacker. Withdrawal and disgust is not the same as apathy. And uh, that's it. You'd be like, six, ugh, we're just not going to get involved. Fuck you. That's basically the attitude that we have, um, you know, as, as, a, as a generation. I remember my first job, I think this was, yeah, I worked at an advertising agency in New York City in 1995. And I guess we we had a meeting where the you know, kind of the recruitment, I forget who it was that was talking, this woman who was um, kind of in charge of some management thing. And uh, they were talking about sexual harassment. And she said, uh, yeah, we have a problem with sexual harassment here. There's not enough of it. That's what she said. As, like, as uh, a, like uh, that, that, that's, where, that's where we were in 1995, which isn't even that long ago, you know? And uh, it, 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 it's really remarkable how much progress has been made on that front since then. I put up with so much bullshit um, as as a writer in 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 an editor in um, in my work when I worked for organizations. Um, I don't want to I don't want to say anything about where, but or when or who. But I mean, it is appalling when I look back at what I tolerated in the name of just having the privilege of being able to work in a field that I enjoyed. Yeah, You know, and I think part of Gen X's attitude is that, you know, look at their numbers. Like we were so far outnumbered by um, baby boomers. And actually, I think I think the year that my brother was born, which was 1975, we had the lowest birth rate. The United States had the lowest birth rate in history, maybe. Um I mean, his classroom, I remember my classrooms were like half empty. There were there were empty chairs, right? Yeah. Like there weren't enough of us to really um be able to stand up to power. So the idea that we had a voice, that people cared about us, I don't know. I just I never I never felt really that that there were enough of us to have a presence or to be able to make a difference or say something. Um because we were kind of sand- sandwiched between these two very large groups. And now, of course, you know, I'm sure you've seen this, um, colleges and universities are starting to panic a little bit because small generations make small generations and millennials have now cycled through the educational system. And now, you know, Gen, Gen Xers kids are cycling through and they're just frankly, fewer of them because there are fewer of us. And so how how are colleges and universities going to fill those seats? Yeah, it's I'm going through that process now with, with both of my kids applying to schools. And it's it's interesting to see how things have changed and how I, I think on some level, the 
the the students have it's a it's a seller's bar or it's a buyer's market i guess yeah you know with the thing so you know it is it is that way i mean the only thing that i can say there's this book called generations by strauss and Howe. i don't know if you've read it it's a, no, a very interesting book where their their theory is that there's there's cycles of generations throughout u.s history where you know one generation comes in and is like the, the sort of ideological uh you know um prime movers where they establish some new way of thinking and some philosophical thing. And then the generation after that dies in the wars. And then the, the third generation gets all the shit done. And the fourth one is just kind of quietly like a, a kind of, you know, transitional thing into the next, into the next round. So the baby boomers, of course, are this generation of, of big thinkers and wonderful, you know, and of course the people that wrote this book are baby boomers, obviously. So, mm, <laughs> you know, biased. It, <laughs> <laughs> and you know the, the 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 thing I can say about Gen X is that historically, you know, I was afraid when that Gulf War happened. Man, I was like, here we go, here it is. But you know, we didn't have to go fight in the wars, which was you know, we did have that because there'd be even fewer of us then. You know, mm, very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is all interesting stuff. The other thing I wanted to say about uh, what Biden's done empowering the uh, the Labor Relations Board and getting these. Um, you know, these these law cases that will eventually go to SCOTUS, which is if you go back and read all the skits, all, so many of them are this kind of thing with labor. Uh, if Trump is elected, he'll just fucking get rid of that. You know, that's that's dead. And uh, well, I, I think I think that's very much part of my manifesto yeah. is and and I've I've said this to I, I said this to audiences back I want to say like 2014. And I remember the blank stares. So I'm curious about how this will land. But I said, you know, what the hell is society for? Like, what is government for? You know, why do we why do we do anything? And I my 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 basest position, my most fundamental position is to to take care of each other. Yeah. You no, know? I mean, <laughs> you're welcome to have an existential crisis if you want to. But ultimately, the structures of society and government are there to support each other as best we can. And we are a capitalist society. Um, that's just a given. That means we use capital to exchange for goods and services as opposed to a, like a subsistence community or, or society where we exchange goods and services for goods and services. Um, and so because we live in a capitalist society, that's just where we live. Like we believe in, we believe that that money has certain magical properties. Um, yeah. Then, then I, then the burden on is on capitalism to support our world to support our communities, to support societies. And that also means working hand in hand with government to make sure that um, these things are doing these, all these systems are doing what they need to do. It's, it's simple to me. That should be our fundamental, you know, galvanizing. I don't know if you can put that into <laughs> some kind of like chant or something, but you know, what is, what is government good for? What is capitalism good for? It's for taking care of each other. And that ultimately, of course, will include taking care of our land and our air and our water and and the animals within all of that. Like that's all that whole ecosystem is part of us and each other. I think we're starting to see that a lot more. So why not demand that of government? Why not demand that of capitalism? And that's exactly the question. That that is the question that um Ben and Whitney Waxman were asking when they founded American Roots, which was, 
what can capitalism do that's good? Yeah. And how, what what do we have to do to make that work? You know, to make this very idealistic notion work. And I say it's idealistic, but actually, you know, there was a moment very, very long ago, but there was a moment when that was exactly how American capitalists thought of their efforts. You know, yeah. they thought we're building something. And that means we need to build everything. We need to be, we need to understand how what we are doing is is part of building everything that we're building. They had I it social responsibility is is the thing. Like I feel like, and I agree with everything you said, you know, I feel like societies always should be judged by how they treat the most vulnerable members of the society. So the idea that we're gonna like privatize schools and do all this voucher bullshit and just take away knowledge from people or access to knowledge from, from kids. Or, you know, like you said, we're not going to have pensions anymore. It's going to be 401ks. And that that's eventually going to fuck, you know, who it's going to fuck over is Gen X. Obviously we've all accepted that. We know we've been, our, our entire adult lives has been prepared for, you know, social security. If there's social security, by the time I can access it, I will be pleasantly surprised. Let's just leave it at that. Social security is fine, Greg. That's that's a red herring. Anyway. <laughs> okay. I hope so. I hope so. But I was reading the, you know, I'm on this Barbara, Barbara Tuckman kick because I read Guns of August, mm -hmm. but her other book about, or one of her other books, A Distant Mirror about the 14th century. And she's mm -hmm. writing about the societies there and how they were set up, you know, and you had these feudal lords who had the land and people would pay rent to till the land. And there was, it was all this system of things, but there was a lot of just like raiders and bridgens and, you know, basically land pirates that would come in and just, you know, steal stuff and kill livestock and burn the towns. And what the, the reason that all of these farmers and peasants were, were paying into the system was that the lords and the knights were supposed to protect them from this shit. Protection, so yeah. Ultimately, like the mafia, right, with the with the labor. So if the government doesn't perform that function, it is useless. It, it just doesn't. And provide for the common defense. I forget what what uh, document that's from, if it's the declaration, whatever, uh, or the preamble or something like that. But that's, that's it. And I think the common defense, it isn't just war it isn't just foreign enemies it's also the climate getting fucked up it's also health you know isn't it how many people died of the, the pandemic in the united states because of trump and kushner fucking up the response you know people were going to die anyway but at least probably half a million people died that didn't need to die if they were competent how is that that's roughly the same amount that died in the civil war so how is that not providing for the common defense like that i think that it is i think having universal health care should very much be argued as something that's providing for the common defense but that's not how um, it's viewed but it's something yeah. that i think to your point we have to demand you know um, well i think i think what's happening here is what you started to talk about which is these um kind of nationless the nationless wealthy yeah right and the nationless, nationless wealthy are people who, yeah, can get up and go anywhere, and they they are true globalists, and they are not they're not tied to any one particular nation or one particular society or culture, and um, you know that's what we have to rail against. Yeah. It's over. I, they, they don't they don't necessarily have to rule our lives, um, but that means developing end runs around them. And that's why, again, I'm very focused on domestic manufacturing because um, 
you know, it's one thing to ask the globalists to try to manufacture locally. I don't know if they could ever even wrap their heads around it, except from a supply chain perspective. There is onshoring going on or nearshoring going on just to protect supply chains. I mean, but ultimately, I, I think I think that horse has left the barn. But there are all these um, smaller shops making every conceivable thing that you could want right here in the United States. And every time you purchase something that's made in your community, meaning the United States in this case, the dollars stay in your community. Um, there's, I'm sure you've heard about the, the multiplier effect, which is when every dollar spent in a community bounces around three or four times before leaving that community. And as it bounces around, it grows. So, you know, just a very simple model would be like, let's say you have a corner store that's locally owned and you buy a coffee there or something like that. Then you're you're supporting the worker who works in the store. You're also supporting the owner. Um, the owner, by the way, has to hire a lawyer and an accountant and, you know, like a local supplier, perhaps. And you can see how, you know, when you get the money in the worker's pocket, the local worker, they might go out for dinner one night or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, it stays in the community. So it's so incredibly powerful. The math has been detailed by many researchers. It's profound. The effect of buying domestically is absolutely profound. It cannot be overstated. Um, and the effect of offshoring is profound and cannot be overstated. We've seen it in, in you know, the devastation that's been wrought. But I just, I would, I'd just like to say again, like these are end runs around pretty horrific trends that have been going on over the past 30 years there's yeah. a way around you talk about the, the the global elite that move around oliver bolo calls them moneylanders which is a great term for what they are they just oh, like they live it. in moneyland you know and they don't like it doesn't matter where they go i we, we should kick them the fuck out of the country is what we should do you, you don't want to play that way get out just go away. you know i actually i ended up um i was talking to somebody who i know i, I know she's very wealthy and just apropos of nothing, she started to tell me about it's. I think it's called a, a golden passport. Do you know mm -hmm. about those? Yeah. Oh, I didn't. So I guess for half a million dollars, you can buy a piece of property somewhere in Europe. And then after five years, you become a European citizen. And, you know, she's very casual about this. And so I went home and I looked it up. What the hell is a golden passport? And I was like, my fucking God, like money really does buy you everything. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. You know, it's just some of these countries, they need the capital. That's you yeah. know, Jersey and the UK is like that. You go in there and you, you, if you make enough money, they'll just let you in and they'll do whatever you want. And that's, you know, that the service economy in the UK, it's not wool anymore. It's the service economy for these oligarchs, which is, you know, pretty awful. Um, so here's where I, where I think we should end um because we're getting on i don't want to keep you too long although i keep you for the next hour, another hour because it's always such a delight to talk to you um speaking of uh kicking people out of the country um <laughs> immigration is a thing mm. and mm -hmm. you make the point in the book you talk about your own family and you talk about people that you know new americans and how essential they are to the to the local economies um you know you talk about it in the factory sense it's definitely like that also in the sense of like you know um farm workers and stuff, people who, you know, pick the avocados and all that kind of stuff. When, when Alabama um, stopped migrant workers from coming to Alabama to do that, all of the fucking crops couldn't get harvested and they lost money because they're morons. 
But uh, what can we do about immigration? What should the policy be? Why is because I, you know, Trump is making this a thing now. He's he's uh, railing against the immigrants. And he said they're poisoning the bloodline, which, of course, is something Hitler said. And uh, charming. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, they, <laughs> they seem to be scapegoated, you know, scapegoated time and again during these election cycles. Uh, but yet, uh, as he sang, uh, as the man sang in, in um, Hamilton, you know, immigrants get the job done. So uh, what do you think we should do about the policy of immigration? Like, what would your change be or your policy be? OK, well, so first of all, this whole thing about immigration, um, you know, Trump Trump saying that immigration is the poison that's that's killing Americans. That's so effective. I just finished reading Farrah Stockman's book. Um, I think it's called American Made. And um, and Farrah Stockman, uh, she's a New York Times journalist. She has a Pulitzer. And her book was fascinating because it follows three factory workers in Indiana um, as their factory is shutting down. They made ball bearings and then the factory shuts down. It takes place right when my book takes place. So it's all, you know, throughout the Trump administration and and I think maybe to the beginning of the Biden administration. Um, and what's interesting about her book is that um, in that factory, so it was Indiana and the workers were white and black, but they were Native Americans, I mean, born in America. And in, in that book, workers are actually being imported. So Mexicans are actually being imported into the factory to to run it. <laughs> and, um, you know, the Mexicans weren't excited about this, about the idea of taking other people's jobs. But you can imagine what the reaction was among the original factory workers, what it was like to have to retrain or to train imported workers, immigrant workers. Anyway, it was crazy. So I can really see why there's so much anger around um, immigrants, because anybody who's been put in that situation or knows people in that situation, which P.S. is probably a lot of the American workers who are displaced by NAFTA, um, that's just, I mean, I hate to say it, but that's just a dog whistle. God, I hate that. When are we going well, to stop saying dog whistle? I would like to come up with a new, I propose we come up with a new term. Um, but yes, yeah, catnip. Thank you. It's catnip. Okay, catnip. Catnip. Dog um, whistle, catnip. I don't know. Yeah, we're going from dog whistle to catnip. So it's yeah. ca it's just absolute catnip for, for people who have suffered um, from that situation. And my book is about a factory in Maine. So Maine is an interesting state because at the present moment, um, it's the oldest state in the union. I think the average age in Maine, and I'll fact check me on this, but I think it's like 38 years old. What's happening is that um, they have a pretty decent educational, public educational system in Maine. And once kids are educated, they go out of state and they don't come back generally because there aren't jobs and, you know, there aren't many urban centers in Maine. It's, it's fairly rural. It's cold. For it snows a lot. Not even like it's 50 degrees. I'm in Boston. I'm just I keep like anxiously looking at the weather. I'm like, please go down to 30. Stop, you know, preying on my paranoia that the world is ending. But, um, you know, when the Waxmans founded their factory back in 2015, they were quite sure that they were going to be hiring former textile and apparel workers who had lost their jobs because of NAFTA. But that's not who showed up to do the work. And it remains a fact to this day 
that the, most of the people who are showing up to do the work in their factory are new Americans. People are coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo. People are coming from Iraq. People are coming from Vietnam, all these different places. Those are the people who are showing up to do the work. And so that's who the Waxmans are going to hire. And I asked them, you know, in the beginning, I was like really surprised. I really, really was. Call me naive. But, you know, I expected when I walked into that factory the first time that I would see, you know, uh, native born American workers. And I looked around and no, that is not what I saw. And so I was wondering, were they selecting out, right? Like, were, were the wages so low that only immigrant workers were willing to do the work? Well, no, that's not actually the case at all, because the starting salary or the starting wage is something like um, $18 an hour now. So um, I think what's happening, well, okay, so you asked me about immigration. I mean, the answer is, don't ask me about immigration. I don't know what immigration policies America should adopt. I do know that we have a serious skills gap in America, that there are a lot of organizations that would like to have manufacturing here. And it doesn't work out that well oftentimes because you can't find people who are properly trained and properly educated enough to be able to be considered skilled workers. And it just takes too much damn time and too much damn work to catch a lot of people up to what's needed. Um, but on the other hand, immigrants seem much more willing to be trained or sometimes actually quite often they come with the necessary training because their countries had some kind of industrial um, policy and some kind of mandatory vocational training. And so they're actually coming with skills. They're also coming with a desire to be self-sufficient um, because their whole lives or maybe a big chunk of their recent lives have been spent just surviving, you know, and feeling terrible about the idea that they were unable to care for their families. You know, that's an awful, awful feeling to be completely dependent on somebody else for everything. And so, you know, when I got a chance to really hang out with um, some of the, the workers at American Roots, I just heard these incredible stories. And I would love to leave you with this inc incredible stories of the journey of getting to this you know, quasi rural community in Maine and being able to work and earn a living and take care of your family for the first time sometimes in decades. But I want to leave you with this. And and it was just such a, a beautiful sentiment. So I talked to this woman, She's she's been working in American Roots now for four years. She has um, three children. And she originally came from the Democratic Republic of Congo. She and her husband met actually when they were in South Africa. They had escaped um, DRC, ended up in South Africa, started a family there, and the the conditions were so bad. Um, it's it's such a it's Johannesburg is a very dangerous city, yep. and she spent most of those eighteen years fearing for her life fearing for her husband's life, fearing for her children's life. There was so much discrimination against Congolese coming into, you know, you're taking our jobs, you're taking our money, like all that shit happens everywhere over, all over the world. That now she's in Maine, she's working, her husband is working, her children are going to school. And for her, do you know what freedom means for her? Freedom means not having to worry every minute 
out of every day that your children are going to come home alive. That just gave me chills. That's why I had to pause. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think we take a lot of shit for granted here. We really do. And, uh, you know, I hope that we are always in a place where we're able to take things for granted. That makes sense. I think that, you know, when you say Absolutely. you're worried about the end of the world, or <laughs> the world ending, um, the world is not going to end. At least it's it's going to be, it's not going to end before January 9th when your book comes out. But, you know, maybe soon <laughs> after that, but, you know, systems can end and, you know, the way that society's function can end and capitalism yeah. could end, we don't know. You know, there's lots of things that can happen that that are black swan events. But, uh, but I, I guess my point, though, is that, like, you know, what is what is America like? What, so I'm not chauvinistically America. That's the other thing that I just want to make clear is this book is called Making It in America, The Almost Impossible Quest to Manufacture in the USA. But I use I used um, Makenga is her name. I use her story and my story, probably your story as well. All of our stories. Um, there is something beautiful about the idea of the United States, right? And it does often function in the way that it should, which is to provide a safe place for people who have no other place to go to survive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, to your point, I mean, I've always sort of marveled at it because the people that come here traditionally always really are people, you know, that didn't, that were had to leave where they were before that were minorities in the place where they were before that, you know, were part of, of ethnic groups that were discriminated against or had lost in some way, something. So, and all of those people come here and band together and become more powerful than everywhere else that they left, which is, I think. And they make, and they make us more powerful. I mean, when you think about, you mentioned Elon Musk before, I mean, like he is an immigrant, um, you know, Trump's family, they were German immigrants. Everybody is an immigrant in America, except obviously American Indians who came here tens of thousands of years ago. But like everybody has an immigrant story. Yeah. And for the most part, they make America stronger for what they bring to America, whether it's simple, simply labor or ideas, which can be at first can at first maybe sometimes seem dangerous and then get incorporated into our culture, um, you know, obviously music, but just ideas about how we can do things differently, how can we can do, how we can do things better, or what is the responsibility of society to each other? You know, those are all ideas that have um, have grown and evolved thanks to various immigrants immigrant groups coming in with their stories and with their cultures and interrogating what American means. Yeah. Yeah. And by so doing, making us interrogate what American yeah. means. Yeah. No, it's, it's such an amazing place. It's such an amazing experiment. You know, I'm, I'm all for it. Like I, I'm very <laughs> bullish in America. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Me too. Same. You know, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, Good. <laughs> yeah, I'm around for the long haul. So again, your book is called Making It in America, which has a it's a wonderful uh, double entendre there uh, in the title. Um, uh, the Almost Impossible Quest to Manufacture in the USA and how it got that way. Um, where can we find you? Are you still on the hell site? Where, where are you these days on social media? On the hell site? Is that Twitter. Saying? Yeah. 
Oh, ha. No, <laughs> I gave up Twitter. Sorry. I was one of those. Um, yeah. yeah. So I'm Rachel Slade.net. That's my website. And you're welcome to go there. And um, I'm also in, on Instagram. Um, I have been starting to do a making it Mondays where I find a local company, meaning domestic. I say local. I guess I should be saying domestic um, company. And I highlight what they do so that just to kind of build our vocabulary and stretch those, you know, build those muscles about not just, like I said, when you want to buy something, when you're like, ah, you know, I need a sweater, I need socks, or I need, I don't know, um, food containers or cookware, whatever it is, like, just take another minute, just take another minute and see if there isn't a product made in America, because chances are there are. All right. Here, here. Um, so again, making it in America, uh, Rachel Slade, always so fantastic to talk to you. Thanks for spending the time with me today. Oh, I so enjoyed it. Thank you. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, and I Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to The 5-8, the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday night hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Be kind to each other. Try and enjoy yourself. And until next time, we shall prevail. MSW Media. I'm Allison Gill. That's A.G. from Mueller She Wrote in the Daily Beans, the premier podcaster for all things special counsel. And I'm Andrew McCabe, former acting director of the FBI and unlucky guy who was right in the middle of getting Robert Mueller appointed special counsel in 2017. And we're joining forces to document the investigations of Trump by the newly appointed special counsel Jack Smith as it happens. Whether it's analyzing court filings, letters, indictments, or prosecution and defense strategies. Or asking questions about special counsel regulations, rules governing classified documents at trial, or the scope of the probes. We'll be here first thing Sunday mornings to cover the latest breaking special counsel news and answer your questions with the assistance of some of the best experts out there. So follow, rate, and subscribe to Jack wherever you get your podcasts. Your only source for all things special counsel. 